everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. For so long that if you follow our show, that you know that we have been covering international affairs or the issues within the international community for decades. Now today, when we look at around the world, too often we always assume that whatever happens within one country, it should only impact the domestic constituents. However, we are living the year of 2022 when we look at or re-examine the world from the pandemic to the war in Ukraine until currently, now even the social issues happening in one country, it's actually spilling over across the continent. For example, like lately the abortion debates top the agenda in America. And we know this issue has been around for decades and since the early 1970s, but why this issue is coming up as a critical and major turning point, not just for America, but for many other countries around the world. So that's why today it's my great honor to invite Neha Wadiker. And Neha is an independent multimedia journalist and reporting across the globe. She reports at the intersections of climate, gender, conflict, health, human rights, emerging democracies, and politics. Again, today, I'm going to talk to Neha and dive into the article that she penned and so amazingly regarding this critical issue. Without further ado, Neha, welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you so much, Will, and, and thank you for having me on to talk about this very important issue. Neha, I want to get started. You know, again, as I mentioned in the intro, because this amazing article, it's so critical and essential at this moment that you wrote and entitled, What Happens When Women Can't Get Legal Abortions? As I mentioned before, you know, initially, what happened in the U.S. regarding this abortion debate has been around for decades. You know, I guess we can trace it all the way back when uh, Bill Clinton was the president and then eventually when Barack Obama and when President Trump until today and Joe Biden is the uh, sitting president in the White House. But as we know that what's happening domestically Generally, we believe it's only a domestic issue. It's only an issue relevant to the people in America. Can you help us to understand why this abortion debate is getting more attention across the continent? So in other words, it's not just about the uh, women's rights in America, but also about this women's right or equality across the world. Yeah, thank you so much, Will. Um, you know, this is an issue that, of course, does affect women around the world, uh, women and girls. And it's really important that we see it as a global issue and not just a domestic issue. Mm. Um, I am based in Nairobi, Kenya, um, in East Africa. And I actually started looking at this um, several years ago when President Trump came into office and he signed something called the Global Gag Rule, mm. which essentially limits uh, American institutions like USAID and others from giving money to organizations that support abortion. And it's important to note that that, that phrase supports abortion is extremely broad. It includes anything from performing an abortion or abortion related services mm. all the way to even counseling a woman about her right to get an abortion. So if you're in Kenya, and you're a Kenyan organization and a woman comes to you and says, I'm thinking about getting an abortion 
and the organization says, well, you know, here are some resources and we can direct you over to an organization that can help you, they're now in violation of this rule, which means that they are possibly not going to get U.S. funding for their organization. And of course, the United States is perhaps the biggest donor um, and the biggest supporter of uh, health related institutions around the world. Um, and so, you know, this is a this is a huge issue. Um, what I also found in that original article, and, and this article was published in Mother Jones magazine, is that the Trump administration took this a step further. They expanded the organizations to include organizations that provide support for HIV AIDS and mm. other serious uh, illnesses. Um, and they really made this um, as large and as widespread as possible to deny funding to these uh, these Kenyan institutions. And this was happening all around the world, um, in Uganda, in Colombia, you name it. Um, and this was being used as essentially a tool to force organizations to not talk about or counsel on abortion, even if that even if that organization is in a country where abortion is legal in some mm. cases or in all cases. So this is in in a, in essence, this is the United States basically changing the foreign policy of other countries through its own decisions about who and where to give money to. So that's kind of an important place to start. Um, and, you know, women around the world are affected by these laws. Mm. Um, you know, in Kenya, in the country that I was I was looking at, there are huge numbers of women who are dying from unsafe abortion or abortion attempts. And, you know, if you speak with women who uh, remember the days before the Roe v. Wade ruling, they'll tell you that there were these back alley abortions or mm. women who were so desperate to terminate a pregnancy that they would do all sorts of unsafe things to uh, to terminate or end that pregnancy. That's happening all around the world. Um, and, you know, with the United States interfering in other countries' abortion laws, it continues to happen. Um, and, you know, in Kenya, there was such a big issue with this that the government actually teamed up with another organization to do a survey and actually figure out how many women are dying or being maimed or mutilated. Some women would go through a process. They would drink um, bleach. They would mm. eat crushed glass. I mean, all sorts of horrible ways to end this pregnancy because they were so desperate. And with the numbers so high, the Kenyan government realized that there's something that has to be done. Um, and that was the path that they were on until the Trump uh, administration came into power. Um, and so, you know, this is this is an issue that affects all women. When women are free in certain countries, it helps other women try to fight for those same freedoms. And when freedoms are rolled back in a country as important and as influential as the United States of America, other countries are sure to follow. Nigel, mm. I know that you, again, you travel internationally and you were based in Nairobi. And of course, that just based on what you're to share with us, that you witnessed how women were actually suffering among the countries in Africa. But let's go back to the U.S., let me bring you to a very simple question. And we know when a political candidate is trying to running through the office or trying to run against uh, the opponents, you know, in order to elevate himself to be, quote, someone different. Those issues such as abortion rights and, you know, uh, equality, you know, all those buzzwords were being thrown, uh, thrown away back and forth. But one thing that today we have to ask the question, and again, Neha, from your perspective, 
How much do you think the politicians actually care about such social issues as abortion? So in other words, do you think or how much do you think the politicians today are just using this topic as the stool or as a mechanism to get themselves elected into the house or into the position or they generally have solutions or they generally are supporting this equality, supporting women's rights in a grander in a greater scale? What's your take on that? I can't speak for the politicians themselves, obviously, and they would be the only ones who know how genuine um, their their um, efforts and their care about this issue really is. So I'll, I'll start by saying that. That being said, I think that um, unfortunately, a lot of these issues are used to get votes, um, mm. whether you are pro-choice or whether you are anti-abortion. That obviously is one of the most heated issues in American society today. It's something that politicians do have to speak to, and many of them campaign on platforms of either being pro-choice or promising constituents that actually we're going to get rid of abortion. Mm. Um, whether or not those politicians are able to live up to the promises that they make to the electorate is a different question. Um, I think oftentimes in today's day and age, uh, we are inundated with news. It's a 24-hour news cycle. Mm. And there are things that can easily push certain items off the agenda. And abortion is one of those things. And so when you have, for example, the withdrawal from Afghanistan or war in Ukraine or inflation or rising gas prices, mm. these are things that voters care about and that affect their lives on a daily basis. And so that's something that politicians are going to have to speak to or address. And oftentimes they see that as being something they have to address first before they can then go to the issue of abortion, which may not seem as pressing to them as some of these other crises that have come up. So it's a difficult position to be in from their perspective, I think. Um, or I would imagine. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important for voters to make sure that they hold politicians accountable mm. for the promises that they make. If a politician says, I am going to protect a woman's right to choose, then it's up to the voters to make sure that they do follow through and they do protect that right. And if they don't, then it's up to the voters to vote them out and pick somebody who will. Mm. Neil, I want to go back to the article that you wrote you know, it's so heartbroken uh, bro broken to uh, read the story that, again, you mentioned regarding a girl called Sarah. And in the story, I'm sure you remember correctly, And but based on what you wrote, you said she was held at the gunpoint, you know, uh, again, after what they called a terrorist did this unimaginable painful things to this girl. And now, eventually, she was seeking ways to uh, uh, to find a better solution, you know, because again, what happened to her uh, led to her pregnancy that was very unfortunate. Now, again, for most of us, for most of us that who I guess have never been to the continent of Africa or never visited those countries before, but when we read such heart wrenching news or heart wrenching stories, Neha, from your perspective, can you share with us how often does such uh, uh, painful things happen? within a country. I mean, again, it's 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 so difficult just to read through this story and understand how a girl like Sarah could go through such complicated procedure and in order to, I guess, to, to, to start a new chapter or to get rid of this uh, darkness. Can you tell us a little bit more? 
Sure. I mean, the story of the woman that you're describing um, is a young woman. She's about 30 years old, and um, she ended up being uh, raped at gunpoint for hours, and she became pregnant from that uh, incident. And, you know, this is not something that is unique to Kenya. Unfortunately, mm. um, as we all know, rapes happen all across the world. Mm. Um, this is something that women live in fear of every day. And this is not just Kenyan women. I mean, American women that we speak to or you speak to are also watching their back in a dark alley or looking behind them when they walk to their car at night. Um, and, you know, this could happen to any of us. It could happen to anybody's mother or sister or daughter um, you know, rape is rape. And mm. in this situation, Sarah wanted to terminate her pregnancy, but she was forced to keep the pregnancy because she was unable to terminate. She didn't have a safe pathway to do that. She actually tried to get pills from a pharmacist, quote unquote pharmacist, mm. um, who was obviously a sham doctor. And he made a profit. He sold her some fake pills and she stayed pregnant. Um, and she ended up having the, the child. And I remember her saying very clearly, if this midwife left, I would walk away and leave the baby there. Mm. I mean, she did not want anything to do with the child of a man who raped her for hours. She would have been reminded of his face every time she saw the baby. Mm. Now, that's not the case with every woman who has experienced rape. Many women choose to keep their children and love their children. But for Sarah, that was not the case. Um, and so I just think it's, it's you know, very important to remember that, you know, rape does happen everywhere. The numbers are different in different countries, of course. Um, but, you know, any woman who has experienced this kind of trauma and then is forced to compound that trauma by being forced to keep a pregnancy, in my view, is, is just inhumane. Mm. Nigga, you know, it's so interesting that today when we look at America and we always say internally when we look at domestic policies, it's fair to say that America is standing at the crossroads. You know, not only that uh, based on this current president that, you know, Joe Biden, he, on one hand, he has to deal with a pandemic. And meanwhile, you know, uh, politically speaking this year, uh, it's very important since this is the midterm election. And also, of course, we're looking at two years ahead uh, with the whole uh, another presidential election now but ultimately we know that the country of u.s and the country of kenya and or many other countries in africa are built based on different political systems or different political philosophies now the next question is again what's happening in the u.s i mean it's it's absolutely impacting again as you mentioned before nea around the world but the question is very simple is why does other country or why do the rest of the world follow the same procedure or follow the same policy as what U.S. does? I mean, given the fact that countries are so much different. So why is I mean, why can't uh, the government of Kenya open up the, uh, the uh, clinic, you know, for for a woman like Sarah? Or why can't they provide any safe uh, 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 hospitals or clinics to deal with the cases like this, but why are they closing down? Or why is the government reducing the opportunities or the legal ways for women to get safe abortion? Can you tell us a little bit more? You know, it's interesting. In Kenya, um, the restrictions on abortions have actually softened in recent years. Mm. Um, Kenya is a democracy. Um, it does have a large Christian and Muslim population. 
Um, and, you know, oftentimes religion is, um, is cited as a reason why people and politicians are against the concept of abortion. But because of what I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that there has been a crisis of women either dying or being maimed mm. by unsafe abortions, the Kenyan government and the Supreme Court of the country has taken a close look at abortion restrictions and slowly has started to increase the uh, criteria or expand the criteria under which women can legally get abortions. Um, there was a recently a ruling that actually clarified that if it were a situation of rape or incest, that a woman should be able to get an abortion. Um, and to speak to your question about you know influence, I think, um, as we know, the United States is an extremely powerful country and it has a very strong um, kind of social democratic pull that that other countries look at and try to emulate. Mm. Um, it has been for a long time a beacon of freedom and democracy. And, you know, a lot of nascent democracies that are younger than the United States have looked at the United States as a, as a country to possibly model their own constitutions or their own forms of government. Um, not all countries look at the United States that way. Um, and many countries actually have more progressive policies than what we have in the United States. But I think it is safe to say that the, the United States um, has a very strong cultural influence on the rest of the world. And so when the U.S. overturns a decision like Roe v. Wade, we are now setting an example that not only are abortion rights something that are up for debate, mm. but they're something that can be revoked. Um, even for countries that might be making progress, if they see this, it is very possible that they will, that especially anti-abortion factions within politics or within the electorate will start to say, well, let's not give up hope. Hope is not lost. Look, mm. they've reversed their laws. Now we can do the same. So it's a very disturbing um, precedent to set when you think about what other countries are are looking at and you know if you look at latin america in the past 10 years there have been abortion laws that have been overturned and women are getting more and more access to safe abortion mm. what's going to happen now you know that's the question Nika, you know the next topic i want to bring into our conversation it might seem irrelevant irre but i think it's also important that we need to address that related to the abortion rights which is the word education. And we know that every year, the millions and millions of dollars that uh, are being poured into uh, not only the continent of Africa, but also across the world from the US in terms of educating women or educating everyone on some of the critical and important issues, you know, such as abortion, such as uh, uh, LGBT community, the equality, you know, you can name it. So the, my question to you is, what happened to the resources that being funded from the U.S. and to the continent of Africa? So in other words, how effective do you think it is today that when we look at the U.S. Uh, uh, today or any other larger countries sending their finance or, you know, their uh, health experts or, you know, psychologists or whatever they, they, they need 
to them and help them to understand what is safe, what is not, and what is legal, what is not acceptable. As also, again, how effective it is today for US or any other larger countries to help with the locals in uh, according to those social issues. It's, it's very effective. Um, when the United States sends experts or organizations or funds organizations in places like Kenya that are doing work around women's education, um, you know, education around human rights, around mm. women's rights, uh, around feminine hygiene, all of these things, it is incredibly effective. What's important to remember, though, is there's a whole counter movement coming out of the United States. So it's not just the government that's sending over health experts to say, this is important and here are your rights. There are also private individuals and organizations and politicians um, mm. who are also countering that by sending over their own people. And I'll give you an example. Um, in 2019, there was a conference called the ICPD. It's a population and development conference mm. that's held every 25 years. And this was the, the 25 year anniversary of that conference. And it was a huge event. I mean, thousands of people came to Nairobi where the event was being held. Mm. Um, there were health experts, there were public health workers, scientists, uh, women's rights activists from all around the world who came to talk about women's rights and women's health. Just across the street from that, was another conference. Now, this was only about 300 people, I think, at the max, mm. but it was a pro-life conference or an mm. anti-abortion conference that was being held almost in opposition to this big conference. And in that room, and I went to this, I went to this conference, I went to both conferences, mm. in the room of this anti-abortion conference were Americans and they were um, people from the religious community. Mm. They were um, very hyper-conservative organizations and NGOs that were there. And the United States delegation under the Trump administration, who had been sent to attend the larger conference for women's health and rights, walked across the street and attended, in, in addition, the anti-abortion conference, which mm. was a show of support by the Trump administration for this conservative anti-women agenda. And it's just important to know that it is very effective when the United States does give money and time and personnel and support to educating women about their rights and their health. But there is this counter movement and mm. they are doing quite a bit of damage by, by coming in and speaking to the other side. So if you are on the side of abortion rights, then this is very worrying. It's a very worrying trend. Mm. Neha, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Again, let's go back to the article. Not only that you mentioned the country of Kenya, and also, correct me if I'm wrong, you also mentioned the country of Uganda. And we know that when we look at the country of Uganda today, again, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, this country has also gone through a traumatic political change. You know, I remember a couple months ago when I was speaking to another health expert from Uganda and she was actually describing the shortages on vaccines and how the government currently in Uganda is not running on this equality, it's not running on this vaccine for all policy. So in other words, it's more military based or it's more, uh, I guess, I, I, I don't want to use the word dictatorial uh, relationship, but it looks that way. So can you help us to understand, in terms of Uganda, 
what is the situation in that country uh, related to abortion or abortion rights? Uganda is a very interesting example, and they are far more conservative um, in the government and um, in the religious community than I think what we see in Kenya. Um, Kenya is an open democracy. It has a functioning Supreme Court, um, and it has a very robust activist community who mm. is pushing and pushing to increase rights for women, um, particularly related to abortion. In Uganda, um, there is far less freedom of speech. Uh, mm. There is far less freedom to act, uh, to advocate for certain agendas. Um, one example that can be seen is that there have been instances of evangelical uh, conservatives from the United States coming to Uganda and preaching against gay rights there. Mm. And ultimately, it has led to the deaths of gay people in mm. Uganda because the local community has heard and absorbed this message, compounded with their existing religious beliefs, and they have actually killed people for being gay. Um, it is very easy to see how the influence of evangelical pastors or evangelical um, community members from churches in the United States have affected social policy in places like Uganda. And so I would just say that in Uganda, it is a far more difficult situation than it is here in Kenya. Neha, you know what, again, going back to the U.S., we always say U.S. is the role model or it's the living example of the word democracy. You know, again, from the presidents and to the officials and even to uh, going back to the historical affairs and events. Now, today, when we look at the word democracy in the States, that could be interpreted many ways. Again, not only it's just about the word bipolar or polarization, but also it's regarding the individual freedom. Now, Neha, I want to uh, tag into the question just again, you ex explain uh, the country of Uganda. What do you think or how do you think that we should define the word democracy today when we are standing looking at the issue of abortion, not just in the States, but globally? How can we redefine the word democracy? When I think about the word democracy as an American, I was born and raised in the United States and democracy is something that I have lived and breathed my entire life. Mm. Um, I think of it as a as a representational government of mm. elected officials who do the work that the people want them to do mm. um, and that it is a system of balanced powers and it is a system where everybody has a voice, mm. where everybody has a voice. And I think when we think about the issue of abortion, um, it is something where the rights of people are being taken away. Mm. And I think that the counter argument on this um, by people who are in the anti-abortion um, cohort is that there are rights of the unborn. And that, that is the very difficult conversation that our country is having right now. It is placing the rights of the unborn against the rights of women. And, you know, this is this is a tough question. It's something that does need to play out through the democratic process. Um, but I would just say that when we think about our institutions um, and it, it be kind of history of American democracy, there have been certain things that were designed that are not necessarily taking place today. For mm -hmm. example, the Supreme Court. 
um, President Trump nominated three Supreme Court justices during his tenure. Mm. These are three highly conservative justices. And President Trump promised when he was elected that he was going to put into power justices who would repeal Roe v. Wade, who were against Roe v. Wade. Now, Supreme Court justices are supposed to be as neutral as you can find in our system. They are supposed to be people who consider the law, consider precedent, and do not let their own personal beliefs stand in the way of making a ruling that follows the law and follows precedent. I think we're seeing that unravel right now. Mm. Um, Political appointments have become, or I'm sorry, uh, judicial appointments have become increasingly politicized. Um, And, you know, we saw that when President Obama tried to get his own justice elected and was not able to. That's right. Um, Sorry, got his own justice appointed, I'm sorry, and, and was not able to. And so, you know, that's one example, I think, of an institution where people's faith is being eroded. Another one is our most recent election. I mean, we had an election and historically in the United States, one of the things that has set us set us apart as a country is our ability to have smooth transitions of power, despite huge differences in the electorate. That's right. Despite a huge amount of passion that people have, there is still a general idea that when there is an election and somebody is elected and somebody loses, the loser congratulates the winner and steps aside. That has not happened in this past election. Mm. Again, eroding the confidence that people have in our democratic institutions. So, you know, I think when we look at the issue of abortion, all of these things have to come into play. It's increasingly difficult for us to have faith in any decision that happens with abortion, whether it's in favor of Roe v. Wade or against it, because of these events that have just sort of massacred people's belief and faith in our existing system. Mm. Neha, I want to wrap up our conversation again, end in a very simple question. How important it is for the younger generations today to participate and not just in this political fight, but in the social fight as well? Because we know that across the world, younger generations, not only in America, but we're looking at the country of France and looking at the country in Europe and, and also, of course, that many nations in the continent of Africa Younger generations today are raising their voices and actively participating uh, in this political and social agenda or even boldly voice their opposition on the streets. So I want to ask you that, again, you travel internationally and you covered stories one after another from one country to another. How important and significant it is today for the younger generations, number one, to understand those issues and number two, to participate and most importantly, to even become the next generation who shoulder the uh, the political responsibilities. So again, from your perspective, can you help us to understand that? I think that young people are going to be the key to solving these issues. Um, As we have seen around the world, as you mentioned, Black Lives Matter, Mm. uh, the climate movement, immigration. I mean, these are issues that are polarizing all over the world, but especially in the United States where, um, you know, we've seen mass protests breaking out across Mm. the country. Now, when Roe v. Wade was being decided, there was a women's movement. There was an equal rights movement that was happening at the time. And the amount of activism and advocacy that came, especially from young people, 
was something that actually ended up leading to the events that caught that 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 led to Roe v. Wade. Um, and, you know, that was one example. And, you know, even recently, you know, we saw it when President Trump had instituted a family separation order mm. that children could be separated from their families at the border, that there were such significant protests from the electorate at that time that President Trump actually reversed that order in mm. a matter of months. So we have seen the impact that social movements can have mm. on political decisions. This is a bit more complicated because this is a Supreme Court decision. Um, that makes it, it's not, a, a, you know, it's not a political conversation where if people don't like it, they can just vote out the Supreme Court right. justices. That's not the case, right? right? So this is a much more challenging um, situation for young people and all people really to protest against if they are not in favor of the decision. Now, of course, we have not seen that Roe v. Wade is, has been overturned, that there it still could change. Um, but as most of the advocates and analysts are saying, it is very likely that it will not. Um, and so that's important to remember. And, you know, I think for the younger generation, there's three things, right? It's protesting in the street. It's making sure that your voices are heard mm. and it's voting mm. because without voting, we are not going to be able to have politicians who represent the beliefs of young people. And especially for something like abortion, it is the young people who are being affected, right? Uh, women under the age generally of 40 are the ones who are having children. Mm. And so, and especially, you know, under the age of even 30, right? So you've got already a younger demographic who's being affected by this. And it's absolutely critical that people get out and get their voices heard both on the streets and at the ballot box. Well, Michal, I couldn't agree with you more because again, I agree that it's so important that for every single person, it's not just the younger generations, but everyone actively participate in this social and political movement and most importantly is to use the votes use the right to vote in order to make changes well neha wadaker is an independent multimedia journalist and reporting across the globe she reports at the intersections of climate gender conflict health human rights emerging democracies and politics and you can find her this again amazing article entitled what happens when women can get legal abortions on foreign policy again aneha thank you so much for taking your time to join the show it's been a pleasure of speaking to you and we would love to have you back on the show again as we continue to monitor and watch this political fight not only in the united states but also across the continent